Yo, what is up? You have found I Like the Blazers. I am your host, Brandon Goldner, and I am excited to share that today's guest is none other than the host of the Dunked On Basketball podcast, Nate Duncan, and we are going to be talking about the NBA's business interests in China and everything that's come of that over the last week or so, and also talking about the Blazers in the context of a packed Western conference. I'm excited to have Nate on. He is my favorite podcaster. He's extraordinarily insightful and thoughtful and if you haven't already uh well let me let me just pivot right to the beginning i want to talk about again the nba's business interests in china is probably the best way to frame it uh, nate recently had a podcast where he spoke about this issue with ethan sherwood strauss and it was the most thoughtful and the most comprehensive and honest discussion that i've heard so far in NBA media circles about this. If you don't know, if you've been living under a rock, the, Ch- <laughs> the Chinese government is not super happy with the NBA right now. And here's what happened in brief. And again, I, I'm hoping to get to this with Nate. You might be able to tell I'm recording this piece before the actual interview, so I don't know what we're going to talk about exactly. He may say I, I don't want to talk about it, which would be completely fair. Uh, but a little while ago, Daryl Morey, the general manager of the Houston Rockets, sent out a tweet that was an image that said, quote, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong, end quote. If you don't know, there has been conflict in Hong Kong, in China. Basically, the, the broadest way to put it is uh, pro-democracy demonstrations and protests it was precipitated by some extradition laws that were being pushed through uh, the government in Hong Kong that would allow the Chinese government to send folks who had committed crimes um, in areas controlled by China out of Hong Kong. And so that is what precipitated the protest, to the best of my understanding. It has now become a broader movement and an indictment of Chinese authoritarian governments and how they treat their people. Uh, just a little bit more on that. If you go to Human Rights Watch, uh, you can find, you know, Human Rights Watch is an organization that um, tries to put into context how different countries and nations um, and places treat people and respect human rights. Human Rights Rights Watch says about China that they have arbitrary detention, imprisonment, enforced disappearance, persecution of religious communities, censorship of the media and public speech, and mass detention and torture of Turkish Muslims. The the Uyghur community may have heard of those folks. So uh, no country is perfect. China is particularly imperfect. It is not a free nation. And so these protests in Hong Kong have become sort of this beacon or bastion that represents something larger than just extraditing people out of Hong Kong into other areas of China. It's become an indictment of Chinese government and the lack of freedom that the folks there enjoy. So that is my understanding of the context behind Daryl Morey's tweet. Uh, this caused an enormous shitstorm in China. Keep in mind that China is, again, an authoritarian government. It has a high amount of control over their media. For example, you may not use Google in China. Their social media networks are controlled by the government. Most of their new, all of their news outlets are controlled in some way, shape, or form by the government. And essentially, it's not a free nation in the ways in which we in America may think of our nation as free. Again, we have our own problems, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
but the the Chinese government was not happy about that. They started canceling uh, NBA events. Uh, NBA was in China right around when that tweet was sent for some charity events, for some preseason games. Um, you may know that there are many NBA players that have deep uh, business interests in China. The Trailblazers' CJ McCollum is one of them. His sponsor uh, is Li Ning, so he wears Li Ning shoes. That's a Chinese company. He's done events in China before. Um, but all of this started a discussion. Uh, you know, Morey deleted his tweet. He said that he didn't mean to offend anybody. But then it began this discussion of, wait a minute, he just said, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. He basically just said... I want people to be free. He basically just said, I support democracy. What's the big deal? So this may not have been as big of a deal for the NBA if it were not that 15% of their revenue comes from China. If it weren't for the fact that the amount of potential growth the NBA could see in China is much larger than what they could ever realize in America and that they're getting billions of dollars from their audience in China – and with China cutting off Houston Rockets broadcasts, with China pulling sponsorships, with threatening to disavow the NBA altogether, the NBA as an organization, as a business entity, as a community understood that pissing off China would be impactful to their bottom line. And to me, this entire issue is really as simple as this. Somebody tweeted a thing. A government got mad and a company or an organization in the U.S. makes a lot of money from that company and didn't want to piss them off. So all of this, to me, it's as simple as don't piss off China. We make money off of them. Where to me, I think there has to be some amount of acknowledgement that, look, yes, I understand that capitalism is inherently damaging and harmful to some people, um, perhaps even to many people. When you think about the ways in which our goods are manufactured, think about the ways in which you know, shoes have been made, you think about the ways in which international trade tends to benefit those with more money and tends to harm people who do not have very much money or power, you can get into this nuanced geopolitical conversation about the effects of capitalism and what we should be doing in 2019, given what technology is where it is and how the standard of living for people could be much greater if wealth were distributed differently. That's a much more complicated conversation. But to me, all of this stuff about the NBA in China is kind of this simple. An American tweeted something supporting freedom. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that good? Don't we like freedom in America? I'm sorry. I thought this was America. I thought that we appreciated freedom in America. And so it's super frustrating when a fan like myself is reading that the NBA is sending out a press release in English that reads much differently than it does in Chinese. It's frustrating to me when people like Steve Kerr, who has been outspoken about any number of nuanced, complicated issues, says this issue is too nuanced and complicated for me to sound off on. It's frustrating to me when LeBron James, who has done a ton of good in this world, who has helped so many people, who has brought and elevated issues that really need a platform and somebody with his stature to elevate those conversations, that he says... Daryl Morey was misinformed that Daryl Morey should have thought before he tweeted and later he he clarified as this as though this makes it any better he clarified well 
Couldn't he have just waited a couple days until people weren't in China anymore? What the fuck? Is it the weird thing that you are concerned about the health and well-being of NBA employees and reporters and players in China? That your concern about that should maybe be focused at the country that you are suggesting might do something to them because they're upset over a tweet? How far is this going to go? And, and all of this stuff, the capitulation toward a nation that is authoritarian and is not free, capitulating to them because you make money off of them, should make people feel kind of icky. It makes me feel super duper icky. I don't appreciate it. I don't like it. And so all of this is just to say, this is not that complicated of an issue to me. This is about America wants people to be free. That is something as a bleeding heart liberal that of all of the kind of you know pro-American propaganda through the 50s and the Cold War about spreading freedom and democracy, I don't think that we should be going into other countries forcibly and overturning governments. That's not what I'm saying. But I do agree with the idea that folks around the world ought to be self-determining and free and be able to use Google and be able to use social media networks that are not controlled by the government. Can you fucking imagine if your social media networks were controlled by Donald Donald Trump, that wouldn't be good, just as it wouldn't be good if they were controlled by Barack Obama. So to me, this issue, you don't need to have a nuanced, detailed understanding of geopolitics to basically just say, hey, everybody, we want people to be free. There is one person in the NBA who did say something very close to that. I'm going to I'm going to put a pin in this right now because I do want to get to the conversation with Nate Duncan. But there's one person who actually basically did say that and he's on the Blazers and I love him a lot and his name is Terry Stotts. I'm not, I've already spoiled way too much. But so, you know, I, I, you can hear that that I am I, I am weirded out by this whole situation. Uh, depending on what I talk about with Nate, I might add to this. Um, I also have to be mindful of how noisy I am past a certain time. So there you go. We're going to talk more about this with Nate, and, and I, I want to plug this again. The Dunked On podcast, Nate recently had Ethan Sherwood-Strauss to talk about this issue. They're much more articulate than me. They're more... Uh, informed than I am. They have a more nuanced view of this than me, and their discussion was absolutely impeccable. Ben Golliver has also done some really good reporting about this issue in a way that hasn't felt stilted or weird. Ben Strauss of the Washington Post, um, as is Ben Golliver, uh, but Ben Strauss uh, also has done some good reporting. So there, there's good information out there about this issue that I suggest that you read up on. Uh, if you want an audio form, check out the Dunked On podcast. Um, we're going to get to Nate shortly. And before we do that, do I want to do one more thing? It is really weird, I have to say, running a podcast all by your lonesome. It's definitely not the same as doing it with somebody else. Um, I do want to talk about one more thing. Okay, great transition. Good job, Brandon. I want to talk about the Blazers and their preseason. Uh, they are currently playing the Utah Jazz. We're recording on Wednesday at about 6.45. The game is close. Uh Right now in the second quarter, Lillard has 15. Zach Collins has nine. Uh, Rodney Hood has six. Uh, and for the Jazz, Mike Conley and Donovan Mitchell both had 10 points apiece. But the Blazers, that, that, who cares about the game? The Blazers are one and two in the preseason. The one game came against Maccabi Haifa, which is an Israeli team, and they won handily. Uh, they got, the Blazers got absolutely de embarrassed, demoralized by the Phoenix Suns, which is not good. Not good. I, I know it's the preseason. I get that. The team has been saying, look, it's the preseason. Don't worry about it. I get that. 
But there is one thing in particular that has worried me. It's how Hassan Whiteside looks. He has not looked good. He has not looked comfortable. He has not looked effective to that end right now in this game. In his five minutes, he has 0.0 blocks and three rebounds. But there was something I noticed in that game against Phoenix I wanted to build out just a little bit, and I want everybody to keep an eye on this as the preseason goes on, as the regular season begins. It was that the Blazers rely on their centers to drop back and stay back essentially to play free safety, essentially to be a backstop against their guards getting blown by, by the opposition's guards. And there was one play in particular, a Suns player was at the, at the top of the key or no, I'm sorry. He was actually on the, uh, on the side three point line, corner three gets the ball wide open. Doesn't matter why he's wide open. Doesn't matter if someone blew a switch. It doesn't matter because the center is way back near the rim in the paint. And that's the way the Blazers system is supposed to work. The defense is supposed to account for that. Their guards are not the best defenders. And that center position is supposed to clean up the mess. So there's Hassan Whiteside in the paint. There's the opposing guard at the wing at the three. He starts driving in. He, he drives in a little bit. Son Whiteside doesn't move. Drives in some more. Hassan Whiteside doesn't move. Drives in some more. Hassan Whiteside doesn't move. He's almost at the rim. Hassan Whiteside's not moving. He's basically at the rim. Hassan Whiteside hasn't done anything. He hasn't rotated onto another person. He hasn't rotated to meet the dude at the rim. He's just basically standing in the paint and then watches as the guy goes up and gets an easy two points, never having moved at all. Now, when you remember watching Yusuf Nurkic, he's not the world's best defender, but he did become a much more effective defender last year in and in fact, by 538's new, what is it, their new analytic measure? It's not Carmelo. Now it's called, oh, Raptor. Um, by the Raptor metric, Yusuf Nurkic was the most effective defensive player in the NBA last year, which it says something. Maybe that metric needs to be tweaked a little bit. But he was better on defense than he has been. But when you watch Yusuf Nurkic, if someone came down the lane, Yusuf Nurkic would meet that person in the air. He would bump them. He would get his arms up. It's not like he was getting 10 blocks a game, but he would provide a lot of resistance at the rim. Hassan Whiteside didn't even try. And I get that it's the preseason. I understand that. I get that, you know, these games don't matter. I get that it was one play, but it was just that lack of awareness. This was not a complicated play. This didn't have multiple motions. This wasn't something where it was like, bang, bang, it happened so fast. When you watch this play, it is something that you, if you were playing a basketball game and there was a person with the ball and they started moving toward you and there's nobody else around, it would be very obvious, well, I have to do something to stop them. And that instinct just wasn't there for him. He just sort of sat there. It was troubling. And I was try I kept watching it, trying to understand what was he trying to make sure that he stayed back. So he covered some, a pass or what, like I couldn't figure it out. And so if that's the level of effort and that's the level of awareness, the Blazers get out of Hassan Whiteside this year, they are going to be screwed. They are going to be screwed. They need him to be nominally engaged, effective, aware. I understand he doesn't have the highest motor in the NBA. He's not the most motivated person in the world. He doesn't have to be. He has to have some basic level of if there is someone coming towards me, I had better go towards them and prevent them from coming to the rim. That seems to be the only thing that Terry Stotts really expects out of his centers. And he needs to do that one thing. So my rant about Hassan Whiteside is that so far that one play encapsulated how he has played so far in the preseason, at least to me, which is not great. It doesn't look good. Now, having said that, 
it's three games, one of them against a non-NBA team, the first three games of preseason, you can't you can't make a determination about what's going to happen next based on three any any three games, let alone three preseason games, but I do want everybody to keep an eye on it. Just watch Hassan Whiteside on defense. Does he look engaged? Does he look alert? Does he look like he knows what's going on? If there's an easy play to make, does he make it? Even if it's not effective, like in that case, even if he had gone up and maybe he got a foul or he'd gone up and he missed the block or he was slightly slightly late in rotating or he over-rotated, but just look for him. Is he engaged in doing something? Because you can clean that up at the margins as the season goes on and you learn each other better and you learn the defense defense a little bit more but we need to see the light bulb going off in his head or else it's going to be a super long season for the Blazers so I have every hope it'll get cleaned up it was just a little bit worrying to me and I want to rant about that too okay with that we are going to welcome our esteemed guest Nate Duncan the host of the Dunked On Basketball I almost made it the host of the Dunked On Basketball podcast Nate Duncan here he is All right, Nate, thanks for joining me. I appreciate the time. Um, yeah, how's everything going today? Pretty good, pretty good. I'm feeling great because uh, I just finished up my 30th of my team previews, so uh, ready ready finally for the season to start. It was a struggle to get them all in this year, but uh, glad glad to get them rolling here. Nice. When's, uh, the, when's the last one dropping? Uh, probably tomorrow night, actually. Thursday night, I guess we're recording this on Wednesday night, so... That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, anyone listening to this, if you haven't checked out Dunked On season previews, they have amazing guests and they're super comprehensive. I find myself caring more about these teams than I ever thought I would. Uh, so yeah, nice work on those and good work on the guests too, obviously. Um, well, thanks, man. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, so I wanted to start with the topic du jour, the NBA's business interests in China. Uh, and again, for folks who may be listening, you and Ethan Sherwood Strauss took one of the most nuanced and considerate takes on this that I have heard in audio form anyway. Um, and so for people who want to dive into that a little bit more, I, I suggest you, you check out Nate's work um, and the Dunked On podcast that dropped recently. But I wanted to ask kind of one question about it and maybe maybe a second follow-up. Um, to me, as a fan, I'm not a geopolitics expert. I'm not an NBA analyst. I don't do this full-time. But to me, I, I understand there's a lot of money to be had in China, you know, 15% of the NBA's revenue coming from China, and there's the potential for much more growth. So I, I get that. Um, but to me, doesn't this just kind of boil down to a we're in America and we want to support free speech? Um, and to that, you know, Blazers coach Terry Stotts said, I believe in free speech and democracy, and it's kind of what we stand for. Why is a statement like that so, so difficult for people around the NBA and frankly, for, for a lot of media members, too? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, for our ESPN colleagues, uh, I feel for them because they're in a difficult position. They, they And to give them credit, in the last few days, I think they, the tone is moderated a little bit, like as like Max Kellerman, uh, I think, uh, was really good on this, for example. Uh, and, you know, they obviously had to react to LeBron James' uh, statements that may have troubled some people. Um, so, but they obviously, they have this deal with Tencent. I mean, like Woj, for example, he's got a show on Tencent in China. And so that's something that could get canceled. And it's not only him, but the people who work on that show that are going to be affected. And if, if one person at ESPN says something and screws up, well, then that could just take away all this China money from the whole company. I mean, not to mention that it's just, it's bad for the company, but that could potentially cost some of their colleagues jobs and could really cause a problem. That's the same thing 
with the NBA as well. I mean, I think now I agree with you. The messaging on a lot of this could have been better without still messing things up with the Chinese. Although that's part of the problem is you never know what's going to set them off. But uh, with this stuff, Daryl Morey's tweet did many other statements of this ilk previously haven't. So it's uh, and you know part of it I think was that it's the Rockets or the their Yao Ming's old team blah blah like it was kind of the perfect storm in some ways but no I, I do think uh, to get to the thrust of your question yeah something like what Stott said today should be the way uh, that they've been going but you know it's been two weeks of this now uh, and so people have finally gotten a chance to figure out what they want to say but it, it's been uh, it's been a difficult road and there's been a lot of people who have messed up and that's why of course this situation is so fraught with peril because people are, have mostly I think messed up in being a little bit pro-China and not to, or at least not uh, supporting the protesters enough or not supporting free speech enough but you can easily kind of mess up in the opposite direction too we saw that with Doc Rivers last night his comments aren't getting a lot of attention but he was like yeah I thought Gerald was right to speak up and then there's all these clarifications from the Clippers PR staff oh no 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 he just meant like he was right to exercise his free speech rights I'm not supporting the content of what he said but so I mean Doc Rivers is another pretty well-spoken guy so that's why it just sheds light on why the situation is so fraught with peril for everyone well, yeah, and I, for me, again, a lot of what you heard from folks who are talking about this who definitely don't want to talk about it is something along the lines of, hey, this is a complicated situation. You know, I'm not educated about it. I don't want to talk about it because of that. And to me, it seems like even in those circumstances that there may be just some baseline of, okay, I understand that maybe the history of China and the history of Hong Kong and, you know, being ruled by the British and giving back to China and extradition stuff, that all of that may be super complicated. I do understand that. But for for folks like LeBron James, who is a figurehead of the NBA, to have, you know, what was it, a week to come up with a response. And what he said was that so many people could have been harmed financially, physically, emotionally, and putting it on, on Moray for sending the tweet rather than saying, holy shit, it's fucked up that people who went to the NBA could find themselves in danger. Again, I don't think that you have to have a nuanced view of this stuff just to say something that Stotts did. And by the way, I mean, he's getting praise for saying something that was pretty milk toast at the end of the day. Yeah, we're all kind of sitting sure. around clapping. I don't know. So the, 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 I will just say as a as a fan, it, it makes me feel a little bit a little bit icky. Um, and again, if you want to hear more about this, check out Nate's podcast with Ethan. I thought it was it was wonderful. Uh, with that, let's talk about basketball. Um, so as you know, I am a Blazers fan, been following the team for a long time. Um, a lot of change happened with the Blazers this year. They lost a ton of their rotation players and now they're replacing them with people who, you know, um, either have been, you know, malcontents or, um, are not in the, in the case of Hassan Whiteside often, um, uh, who, who don't who don't replace the defense that they lost and they lost Aminu and Harkless uh, with people like uh, Anthony Simons and Zach Collins who are super young and may not be ready to contribute or people like Pau Gasol and Anthony Tolliver who are at the end of their careers. Um, with all of that being said, in your view, do you think that the Blazers, just from a talent perspective, do you think that they got better or worse this offseason? 
Yeah, well, uh, will whether they got better or whether they will be better is different, right? Because remember, for much of that 53-win season a year ago, I know Blazers fans know this, they had Yusuf Nurkic, and now they're probably not going to have him for an equal amount of time as what they did have him for last year. So, And, and he, during the regular season at least, I thought was their second-best player. On it. Do, do you agree with that? Yeah, no, for sure. Last year, yes. Yeah, so uh, that's going to be a big blow, and they, I think, to me, have lost – their three best defensive players from last year, Harkless, although Harkless did really struggle throughout a lot of the regular season, which uh, he finally came on a little bit in the playoffs. Uh, Aminu and then Nurkic, who you know, may be back by the end, but hard to count on him being 100%. Now, the but they went in a different direction. I think their offense is clearly going to be a lot better. I mean, Blazers fans are just sick of seeing Alfred Camino and Mo Harkless be left open by the Golden State Warriors and not be able to make them pay, and Draymond Green just standing under the basket and stopping everything that they're trying to do. So, And they saw that three out of the last four years against the Warriors. And so I, I do think they're a more dangerous offensive team this year, and I think you might see maybe C.J. McCollum have a little bit better of a season with a less uh, defensive attention on him. But, yeah, I mean, they lost you know that combo forward defensive player. Those guys weren't stoppers, but they at least had size. They had versatility. You could put one of them on the point guard. You could put the other one on the four if you wanted to switch. They, they gave them something defensively that I think they're really going to be missing. And so but I'm curious of whether, hey, is this Terry Stott system? We're going to trust the math. We're not going to let you get anything at the rim. Shoot from the mid-range, but you're going to be open in the mid-range. Is that enough where they can get to being passable defensively with this group? Because, I mean, you really look at it, and there's not – a lot there. And so that's one question. Then the other one is they got nothing defensively on the perimeter is having two big shot blockers, which you don't see much anymore playing together in Collins and Whiteside. Is that going to be enough to barricade the paint Milwaukee buck style that what happens on the perimeter isn't going to matter that much. Well, and it's been concerning watching these preseason games. And I get that it's a small sample size. It's preseason. There've been a couple plays where, you know, the Blazers, like you just said, they're, they're trying to with their system. They're dropping the bigs back and trying to funnel people into the middle uh, where the, the, uh, the opposing player has had a clear shot to the basket and there's Hassan Whiteside, and he didn't even move. He just sort of sat there. Um, and that was concerning to me. Do you think that Terry Stotts, who in the past has gotten maybe more from players than, than, than they've shown in years past with Harkless came from Orlando and then played better. Aminu came from the Mavs and played better. Uh, Nurkic is, is, is a really famous case of that. And I don't know if you put that all on code Stotts, but basically do you think that players like Hassan Whiteside who maybe not have played up, have not played up to his potential. Do you think that there's something about the Blazers culture, be it Stotts or Damian Lillard, where they can reasonably expect him to play better than he has in years past, or is that just not not something to rely on? Yeah, I mean, it definitely has happened for some of these players, and those are players I think that uh, he's a little bit different because you could make the argument that Aminu, Harkless, Nurkic, those were all young players who had flashed in their previous stops and for whatever reason weren't in their team's plans, maybe weren't used properly. I think there are a lot of people who are like surprised that they just, the Magic just gave away Mo Harkless for the top 55 projected pick. You put uh, Shaz Napier in that same category, right? He resurrected his career. But those are, and Napier maybe was someone who hadn't flashed that much before he came to Portland. Uh, but, you know, there's other guys. Nick Stauskas had a hot start to last year. He, he kind of fell apart. And, I mean, it's more to me, Whiteside's on the downside. You know, if we're talking about 2016 playoffs to sign Whiteside, 
that's a little bit different player. I think just physically, because he came on the scene later in his career, you forget that he's 30, and I think he's dealt with nagging injuries. He's kind of slowing down. Maybe he's not as motivated, obviously, going for the big contract as he was back in his heyday. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that is concerning. If he's going to have DeAndre Jordan disease where he's going to jump at, you know, one third of all penetrators or move his feet to get in front of guys and just not really be a factor there. That that is a concern to me. Hopefully, uh, and they don't have that much behind him at least early where they can motivate him with playing time. But in theory, uh, or defensively at least, he fits perfectly into Stotts' system as an immobile guy who can protect the rim. That's exactly what they've been wanting their centers to do this whole time. But what do you think of his offensive fit, uh, though? That's that's a question. I, I have my opinion, but I want to see like your local perspective on how he's going to fit in offensively oh no uh, you're not supposed to ask me my opinion uh i do think <laughs> he 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 creates a lob target that the blazers haven't had really in a while i mean mason Plumley, maybe a little bit uh, the problem is that the blazers don't have anyone who who really like to throw lobs uh so maybe yeah. there's some vertical spacing they get from him but i don't know if they're gonna be able to take advantage of it um from what i have seen of him so far and the small amount of scouting i've done and i'm not perfectly informed he seems to, to seems to want to to shoot a mid range shot, but doesn't seem particularly yeah. good at it. And he also doesn't seem to have the the cleanest and most effective post moves. So beyond uh, no. catching lobs, I, I don't really know what he brings. What would you say about that? I mean, offensive rebounding is something that he's oh, been one of, one of one of the best in the league, and that's actually been an underrated strength, I think, uh, of this Blazers team. Uh, and they should be really good at that. You'd imagine if they're going to play Collins, who's also a good offensive rebounder with him um but yeah i mean i think you know the reports were dame wanted a guy who could go up and get alley oops and you're right they haven't had that but i think that given where the blazers have been weak and with more teams i think going to more aggressive pick and roll coverages hassan whiteside is really a bad fit when you put two on the ball with dame Lillard because as you mentioned they you throw it to him on a short roll he wants to just take that mid-ranger which he can't hit he's a one of the worst passers in NBA history, at least uh, up until now, you know, so he can't do kind of that DHO game that they like to run with Plumlee and and Nurkic, uh, and so so he's not really going to make the best decisions. And as you mentioned too, I mean, if he's like, you could say, oh well, just don't throw it to him in the post. Well, uh, I mean, Nuggets fans would know this with X Blazer Plumlee, when you can't post up but you try to post up, you're really short-circuiting the offense because you're in the way of everyone else. And players have always been taught, hey, if someone posts up, throw it to them. Uh, but so so if he insists on doing that, and again, he's, his, his base is too high, very awkward post moves. I mean, he believes that that's what he wants to do and he can be good at it. But uh, at age 30, I'm guessing he's not going to experience some kind of renaissance in the post. So, I mean, considering that they needed something at center, knowing that Nurkic was going to be out as long as he was, it wasn't a terrible trade to get him. Uh, you know, he's probably the best available, especially considering they got off of Myers Leonard in that trade as well, who wasn't necessarily going to help them unless it was game four of the conference finals. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I do have some concerns about his ability to fit in, especially then when you also say, yeah, you want to run spread, pick and roll, but you don't really have shooting at the four with Collins unless he can take a major step forward. One more question on Whiteside, and then let's talk about the West. Uh, so, 
we have seen the Blazers have picked up centers and they have become slightly better passers when you look at both Nurkic and particularly at Plumlee um, in their previous stops compared to in Portland, they became better passers. They were part of that offense where the, you know, would run through them a little bit and people would rotate around them and they could make, you know, simple passes. I, I think Nurkic last year is passing was getting noticeably better um, and making, I think medium to difficult passes semi-regularly, which was super encouraging. You've watched Hassan Whiteside play more than I have. I'm quite certain. Um, and you say, like you said, he has been one of the worst passers in NBA history. When you're watching him play, is there any hope at all that this different system in which other centers have gotten better at passing just because they're forced to, is it, is it possible that we see some of that out of Whiteside or is there something inherent in the way he sees the game that would prevent that? So where he's most often a black hole is when he receives the ball in scoring position, right? If it's in the post, he, he's like an opportunity double. You just send two guys at him. He's probably going to turn it over. His turnover rate's been really high. You know, he's not going to get a, a kickout pass from under the rim if he's double teamed. But when you say, hey, you know what? You're catching the ball 23 feet from the basket, like we've seen it with this Blazers group. And you say, hey, your job is just to pass it. Uh, then, you know, I think... You can get guys better in that way because it's like, all right, now all you're thinking of is passing from here, right? You don't have to make the decision of shoot or pass. Like there's no tunnel vision to get as a, when you're not in a position where you have to decide whether to shoot or pass. You're just, your job is just to kind of set things up. So I do think there's a chance for him to improve if they use him that way, but there's also little evidence to indicate that he has any kind of a history of that so far. So maybe he can prove okay at like some of the rudimentary stuff that they need him to do. I mean, my guess would be they'll do a lot of that stuff through Collins, who has shown some flashes passing it. Yeah, he has. All right, let's pivot to the Blazers as they sit in the West. I recently contributed to a little roundtable piece from uh, from around the rim at hoop.nba.com. One of the questions was about the bottom of the Western Conference, and you may disagree with the premise of the question, but just entertain it if you don't mind. Um, it said, assuming that there are two playoff spots between Dallas, New Orleans, Portland, Sacramento, and San Antonio – who do you think are going to be getting those spots? Um, and I'm just curious if, if that's the way you see the bottom of the West shaking up. Um, and if so, who do you think among those teams have the best chance at making the playoffs? So I have both the Spurs and the Blazers at 46 wins. So that would probably be it. Uh, I actually have the Blazers higher than a lot of the projection systems seem to like 538 has them at 41 wins. And uh, Neil O'Shea uh, tried to have some fun uh, at their those projections expense about how they, they can't measure the culture and blah, blah, blah. So uh, uh, O'Shea, <laughs> he is a, he is a media media set or either media savvy or media conscious GM. I'm not sure which of those. I would go with the I latter would. on that. Yeah. <laughs> those I, I, I would select, but you know, certainly you can play the nobody ever believes in us card uh, when you've got this small market. But to me, I think those teams are, are more established Dallas, Sacramento, New Orleans. Now those teams all are young enough that they could pop and they could be better. But given the established playoff level that San Antonio and Portland have reached. I would say that they look better than those teams, at least coming in. But, I mean, those teams have enough young talent where if it blows up, uh, they could certainly get in the mix. And and about, you know, 
about the West at, at the top of the West. So first of all, tell me if this is an ignorant comment. It seems to me that there is more talent concentrated in the Western Conference, um, particularly in the kind of good to great teams category than we've seen in a while. Is that is that a fair statement? Um, I think it's pretty close. You, you know, I mean, you had 48 wins to get into the West last year. Now, uh, I mean, Golden State not being an all-time great team anymore, and that's a pretty big loss. But if you're just saying, you no, know, among very good playoff quality teams, um, you know, I'd say that Denver, Houston, the two LA teams, and Utah, you know, those five, I think, are kind of more at the top. And then I'd lower it down a tier. I'd put Portland, San Antonio, Golden State in the same type of tier. You know, I mean, we've seen years where it took 48 wins to get in that generally i mean even if those teams got better that's kind of an outlier there are going to be injuries there there always are so uh, um you know i wouldn't put it quite at the level of say you know 2010 when you had basically i, I think the uh eighth seed was pretty close to 50 or, or at least a seven seed was still on 50 wins like the thunder against the the lakers that, that year and you had everybody bunched in basically within about seven games um and you don't have that one team that looks like they're going to be unbelievable. So I don't think this is the best it's ever been. I would actually point more to not the top of the West, but kind of that lower section we were just talking about where you've got teams like New Orleans and Dallas, uh, who could be, uh, and Sacramento, who all kind of profile to me around 500 level of teams. And that's your, you know, now you're going to almost 13 deep in the conference, right? And so that, like, the, I think it's really more about the middle being stronger in comparison to the East. That, and even, you know, if you're looking at a Memphis or a Phoenix, for to being, you know, maybe the conference's two worst teams, those aren't bad teams to me. You know, those, those are teams that should at least be winning in the high 20s. So I think it's really more at the bottom where you don't have these, these teams that are just like, eh, you know, 29 wins. You know, you don't have any, like, Knicks or anything like that. Uh, in this Western Conference, that's where I see it more as being a, a little bit of a historical outlier. And and two more questions, we'll get you out. Um, my understanding is in the history of the NBA, there has been one season in which a conference has had a a single fifty win team, and it was the Eastern Conference in the seventies. And um, don't remember the specifics. I, th I think that that's accurate. Yeah, you could you could go back to to uh, I think the Nets in either. 02 or 03 were like the number one seed with 49 wins in the East. Like that would, that would probably be another time when you had max, oh. max conference disparity. I mean, some of the, some of those teams, I mean, there's, I mean, for really since Jordan retired, it's been almost always the West that, that has it for whatever reason. So, um, but, but yeah, sorry to, to, to your question. What, what were you going to say there? No, 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 you're good. Actually that, uh, I, I appreciate that bit of historical context. So the question was this, and this is going <laughs> to, Really um, make my 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 friend and colleague Ryan Whitledge from the Blazer Tad podcast happy because he asked me about this. Do you think that it's possible that the Western Conference only has a single 50 win team because all these teams are beating up on each other? And there might be injuries and Clay Thompson comes back and who knows? Like, do you think it's possible there's only a single 50 win team? Uh, no, I, I think that would be a major surprise to, to me. And part of that is I think people uh, can sometimes overrate the difference that it can make in terms of your number of wins in the regular season, what conference you're in, obviously the playoffs, you got to play all the teams in your conference. That's much different, but even at the maximum possible 
conference disparity. I think we're pretty close to that number right now. Uh, even to that maximum disparity, you're really only costing yourself about two wins by being in the harder conference. Because if you think about it, 58 of the games that you're playing each year, those are the exact same with everyone else, right? I mean, other than playing yourself. So uh, it's really only 24 games that are different. And so even if you say, hey, the, the East has a collective winning percentage of 45% and the West has a collective winning percentage of 55%, over a 24-game period for an average team, that really only adds up to about a two-game difference. So uh, I think it can be overstated a little bit. Oh, you're in the West, like you're going to have so much more trouble. you win so many fewer games. Yeah, at the margins, I think that matters. But to the point where they're going to beat each other up that no, you only have one 50-win team, I, I think that might be overstating it a little bit. That seems fair. Uh, and the last, the last question, then, and then we'll get out. Um, ignoring the number of wins because that doesn't matter. And by the way, there are a lot of people um, in Blazer circles that are like, "Oh yeah, the Blazers are definitely a 50-win team this year," and I don't see it that way. And the team itself is at least the the narrative that they are. Uh, projecting is that they would like to see themselves as a title contender, partly because of the talent they think they have, partly because they made the Western Conference Finals last year. Um, so I wanted to ask you, and again, it's it's early. You know, they haven't even played one regular season game. I get, I know that you can't look at a crystal ball. If you were to guess, what do you think would be a reasonable playoff outcome for for this Blazers team as currently constructed? Does this look like a first round team, a second round team? Uh, or, or something else in your view? Yeah, that's a, a tough call. I mean, I would expect them to be about the same quality that they were in last year's playoffs. But, of course, they had a pretty easy bracket in last year's playoffs, right? I mean, they easily, if they had to play Utah, if they had to play Houston, if they had to play Golden State, they easily could have lost in the first round. Uh, Utah, who knows? But uh, they definitely had a, a pretty easy go of it. And they eked by Denver. I mean, I still kind of thought Denver was the better team. Obviously, the Blazers won it. Uh, Denver, I thought, had a, a little bit more talent. And they they got a lot better this year as well. I mean, I think their first-round matchup could be harder this year. So if I had to guess, I don't see them as one of the top four best teams in the conference. So that probably means you're going to lose in the first round. But a lot of it is matchup-dependent as well. I mean, the Blazers had a really difficult matchup the year before, and they got swept by the Pels. So I think a lot of it is going to really depend on that. You know, if they go up against Denver, I think they match up reasonably well against a Denver team. Uh, if they go up against Houston, you know, who the hell guards James Harden on this team? I, I really have no idea, you know, or, or who guards LeBron James or who guards Kawhi or Paul George. So ah, that I think is it. the problem. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I just said the, Baysmore can do it, and I'm saying that yeah, jokingly. Yeah, I mean, but, and, but I will say this, actually. I mean, this Blazers team is not complete. I think that they're yeah. going into the season. They should have a really good offense. They, I actually have predicted on my pod with Mike Richmond that they will trade a first-round pick this season to try and get better, and that there may be players out there. Maybe it's Andre Iguodala, although you know, I think it seems like he would prefer to get bought out. We'll see where that happens. Or you know, maybe it's Jay Crowder in Memphis. I mean, I think there are players available who can take on that stretch four role uh, who might be a little bit better offensively too than uh, Harkless and Aminu were. And that's really what they're missing. So if they get someone like that and he really fits in well, 
then all of a sudden you that might change your opinion. And I also just want to see how Damon and CJ look too. I mean, if both of them are better than they were last year, then uh, that really helps matters also. I mean, Dame, you think he's topped out, and then he takes another step forward, it seems like, every year. So I'm uh, I'm not writing that off, but as of right now, I would have them as substantial underdogs against any of the top four, maybe even the top five teams. But it is kind of matchup dependent, and they could get a lot better throughout the season. Um, you know, maybe Nurkic comes back and he's 100%. There are variables here, to be sure. Yeah, I think some Blazers fans are bracing themselves for a Kevin Love trade. Uh, I've heard a lot of people. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, Mike, when he came on the pod, he said, yeah, the Blazers aren't uh, as into him. And also, uh, when I just did my pod with Chris Fedor of Cleveland.com, he was saying the asking price is really high. They're looking for a Tobias Harris type of asking price. And uh, I'm quite sure that the Blazers would not be interested in giving that you would think and yeah i mean he would make them a lot better offensively but man it's uh it, it would be tough defensively i mean they might be the best offense in the league but it's going to be hard to have a playoff caliber defense with him in there so may, maybe they won't go in that direction uh and it's hard to see the price being right if that's really what cleveland uh, is looking for there yeah well nate i appreciate you thanks for coming on if people wanted to see your work or connect with you on twitter how would they do that yeah nate duncan nba uh, we post about uh, Pretty much everything that we do, do a live NBA cast where uh, once a week and then for most days during the playoffs, my partner Danny LaRue and I will uh, do actually an alternate commentary that you can sync up uh, and watch us. The Dunked On podcast is five days a week during the season. And uh, keep watching my Twitter if you're going to have a big announcement tomorrow. I'm not sure when this is posting. Uh, this will be uh, oh. on Thursday about a uh, a new venture that I will be doing. So uh, please, please keep your eyes peeled for that if you're interested. That's awesome. Cool. Thanks, man. Appreciate you. Thank you so much to Nate Duncan of the Dunked On Basketball Podcast. I can't tell you how excited I was to get him even for a little bit. I really, really appreciate his time. Please check out the Dunked On Podcast and all the good work that he does. He, again, is one of the more thoughtful people. The way that he approaches his thinking of the game, um, the even the, the, the guests that he brings in are impeccably interesting and um, I really, really appreciate the way that he approaches podcasting as an independent journalist, uh, somebody who you can tell by my gushing I admire quite a bit, and I really appreciate his time. Thanks, Nate, for joining the show. With that, that's going to, I think, be a wrap on episode two of I Like the Blazers. Please check us out at ilikeTheBlazers.com. We are now on Apple Podcasts. I am working on getting the podcast onto other services. There may be some sponsors in the future. We are going to have more local guests. We're going to have some, I don't know what else. I don't want to overpromise and underdeliver. But what I can promise is that as the season winds up and as we get going, I am going to be having a ton of fun doing this, whatever the format ends up being. And I really appreciate that all of you are listening because it means a lot. Uh, everyone who supported me in all the various blazers and basketball things I've done, you are all the reason why I do it. And I really, really appreciate it. Uh, hit us up if you want to. I like the, if you want, please just do anyway, just send us an email. I like the blazers at gmail.com. Again, I like the blazers.com with that. Thank you all so much. And I will catch you on the flippity flip on the next. That's so lame. Yeah, I'm sorry. I will I'll catch you on the next episode, all right? All right, see you later. Thanks.